Well, Halloween just ended, and so the season for scary movies is slowly coming to an end, and I guess now it's time for Hallmark Christmas classics. How many of you are Hallmark fans? Raise your hand. Oh, you got to be kidding. <laughs> On this side, oh, they're all over the place. How many have started watching them already? Oh, oh you're kidding. Anyhow. It should be, if only we had a confessional. Some of you, um, some of you, however, don't really care about seasons. You like scary movies any time of the year. You're always ready for a good scare. Uh, I recently read that watching scary movies can actually help you lose calories. Did you know that? Can help you lose calories. And for some people, they can make you feel better because jumps scares and movies release dopamine and adrenaline which gives you a momentary rush so they can be actually happy the only problem is they can also increase your anxiety levels and you may be forever scared of the dark not a bad trade-off dopamine for you can't go out at night not a bad trade-off so when freddy krueger appears in the a person's nightmares with his sharp claws, or Jason from the movie Halloween jumps out of the bushes wearing his creepy mask. This has the tendency to cause momentary alarm and fear. Some of you love that feeling. Some of you love it. And hiding behind a blanket for an hour in a dark of night on your couch, there's nothing more enjoyable. I, I love that. But I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you, that most scary movies have nothing on the scariest movie of all time. And it came out in the summer of 1972. If you've been born after 1990, you may never have heard of this movie. But it is a movie that has left personal scars on many people. And the name of that movie is called A Thief in the Night. It is a one-hour-long movie. It is terrifying. Produced by an obscure evangelical film producer named Donald Thompson. He only had a paltry $60,000 budget to make this movie, and it is estimated since it's been put out since 1972, over 300 million people have watched this movie. Some of you old-timers can remember when churches would play this movie on Sunday night, and it was used as an outreach to try to get young people to come to church so you could scare them into heaven. What a tool. Fantastic. So you're wondering what's so scary about it, especially if you've never seen, seen it. The plot line is simple. Here it is. A girl wakes up and there's a radio announcement playing where it says, millions of people on earth have gone missing. And right when she hears it, there's a buzzing noise in the bathroom. There's a shaver running in the sink. The electric shaver that her dad was using was all that was left of him and his pajamas. That's all that was there. And then she looked out the window and the neighbor's lawnmower was moving all by itself across the lawn while the person's clothes were left on the newly cut green grass. The girl was left behind. The rapture of the church happened where all true believers in Jesus were taken into heaven in a silent flash, and a bunch of poor, downtrodden unbelievers were left behind. The reason it was so scary is that most of the people who saw it 
would often imagine that they too were left behind when they would come home and nobody was there or some shoes would be left in an odd place or they'd be driving down the road and there's nobody else on the road but them. They wondered, am I lost forever too? It's terrifying. It's a terrifying feeling. This tiny little movie did more for exciting end times prophecy and sermons on Revelation than honestly any good clear reading and teaching of Scripture has ever done. So it's been a great tool. And then add folksy Larry Norman song, I wish we'd all been ready. And you have a smash hit. To this day, rapture anxiety is still riding high in the evangelical church because no one wants to be left behind. And so the passage we're going to look at today is the number one verse in the New Testament that has been used to support this whole left behind scenario. And it's the secret rapture teaching sometimes where we get, we get this from. I think what will surprise you about this passage is that it is really not addressing what will occur when the end comes as much as answering a deeper question. It's going to answer a more serious question to the church at that day. A church that was really struggling with a very, an idea that was scaring them half to death. And this is going to deal with when Jesus comes back, what happens to those who have died? Will they be left behind? I love scary movies. I love being scared. And so naturally, I love talking. I love this topic. I love it. But my job as your pastor is to let Scripture teach us and not to try to put our view on Scripture, which I think sadly sometimes we put that movie on top of this and it all makes sense. So if you can open up the 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 and stand, and then you can follow along with me as I read. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You may be seated. I want to begin with a word called hermeneutics, because I, I think um, one of my jobs is to help teach how to properly assess how we interpret Scripture. And a word we use is called hermeneutics, and it is used by Bible teachers to say that we, as teachers, have an obligation to rightly divide the word of truth. That's our obligation. One of the most important rules of having a proper hermeneutic is to do your utmost to understand the author's intent. What did the author intend? when he wrote this. 
In this passage, we must first ask, why did Paul write this? What was he wanting to communicate to the Thessalonians at that time? Every reader of anything must first do this. What did the writer or the speaker intend? And this is a skill that's really sadly lacking in our day. Even if you read Facebook comments or somebody writes you a note, instant messenger or texts you, we instantly jump to our conclusions without reading what was the intent of the writer. Or even when the president speaks, we put intent, our own intent, on what he means. And we have to be very careful we don't do that the Bible. It's called heresy when we do that, if it's our interpretation over what the Bible says. It's called the difference between exegesis, where I let the Scripture tell me what it says, as to eisegesis, where I tell the Scripture what I want it to say. Let me give you an example. I like to use this example. Let's say I write a letter to John Doe, to John Doe. John Doe receives this letter, and he opens up this letter, and it's a note that I wrote him. Here's the note. You can see the note. It says, to John Doe, and he reads it, puts on his glasses, reads it, and as he gets a right in about the middle of the letter, it says, I'm going to kill you. And John Doe throws the letter down and says, wow, I didn't know Chris hated me that much. I'm going to call the cops. He's gone mad. He's stark raving mad. And he runs out, brings it to the cops, and they arrest me, and I'm in jail forever. But then the cops read it, and they go, wait a minute. Let's read this letter. Dear John Doe, I miss you, my friend. I have not seen you in a long time. How is your pet iguana? He is so cute. Hey, I just want you to know I found my new white sweater I loaned you in the dirt. It's in the dirty clothes hamper. I saw the big purple grapefruit stain you left. I'm going to kill you. That was my favorite sweater. I was going to wear it for the upcoming Ohio State-Michigan game. It's going to be another beatdown on poor old Wolverines again. <laughs> Anyhow, have fun in San Francisco and don't eat too much rice. Love you, my friend, Chris. Now, if you notice the intent, I don't want to kill the guy. I'm just a little upset. It's my white sweater. My intent was not how he originally read it. In this letter that we just read, Paul is very direct about his intention for writing. And, and, and. It is not to bring fear about a coming secret rapture of the church. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He wants to alleviate fear. He wants to, well, look at verse 13 and 18. Verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. So he wants to teach them about what happens when Jesus comes back. So he wants to teach them. But more importantly, at the end, verse 18, he says, therefore, be scared out of your minds. <laughs> oh, he doesn't say that. Therefore, go tell everybody if there might be left. Be no, he says, therefore, encourage one another. This means comfort, alleviate fear. They were having worries at that time. There was two main worries. When you read some uh, different writings, they say the church at this time had two main worries. Number one, they were really worried, what happens to my loved ones when Jesus does come back? What happens to the dead? So the first worry, go ahead and click it, two clicks. They were worried about number one, what happens to those who died when Christ returns? 
Will they be left in a cold ground? Will they become worm food? As one writer said, the Thessalonians, who were pagans before they were, say, they were Gentile pagans, their worldview was once you die, it's final, it's over, it's complete. You know, you know have you ever worried about somebody you love, what happens to them? Is there any hope beyond a grave? Are the new atheists right that there's nothing after someone dies? And if that's true, then we do have reason to worry because I do want to see my loved ones again. Is there anything, any hope for them? And the second worry they had, we actually can find it in 2 Thessalonians 2 too, is that they were worried that they missed Jesus' return. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2 too, do not be too quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, there were some rumors flying around the church that they missed it. In other words, they were worried they were left behind. And so Paul doesn't want them to be anxious. doesn't want them to worry. He wants them to be informed and encouraged to take comfort. He definitely does not want them going around wondering if they never were his in the first place. Last year, I went to a late-night movie with my son. We got out about 12.30 at night. We walk out into the lobby of the theater. There's nobody there. But all the lights are on and a popcorn machine's still on. Nobody's there. We go out to the parking lot. There's only one car. It's our car. We drive home an alpine under a cloud of darkness, and there are no, all of the streetlights are blinking yellow when you get about, new, about midnight. They blink yellow so you don't have to stop down alpine so you can cruise down about 90 miles an hour. And there's no cars. And my son says to me, Dad, is this the end of the world? And man, for a second, I wondered if I had to get ready to start fighting zombies. But even worse than that, I think maybe, maybe I didn't believe the gospel after all. I pastored all these years being a fraud. You know, that instantly comes in your mind. So that, let's alleviate some fears. The first question is concerning the Christian dead. The first thing Paul's going to address is what happens to the Christian dead? Those who are Christians and they die and they get buried in a coffin, they go six feet under, what happens to them? Especially when Jesus comes back. Are they forgotten forever? If Jesus comes back this afternoon, and I like to think about it practically, will my dad, whose body's still buried under the hard ground in Avon Lake, Ohio, which is right by Lake Erie, so you know it's cold right about now, Will he be left behind and trapped by a layer of dirt, grass, and stone for all eternity? Well, let's read verse 13 and 14 again. Verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Two interesting things that we can note from these verses. Number one is the idiom or phrase Paul is using to describe the dead. He says, those who have fallen asleep. He uses the words, they're sleepers. They're sleepers. It is meant to be actually a very comforting term. It's kind of like saying, where's dad right now? Well, he's up, he went to bed. It's not a, 
a coarse, dispassionate description of raw skeletal remains being chewed on by maggots that could cause more pain for the one that you love. It's to comfort you. He's sleeping. One Bible scholar writes, Paul here is referring to the death of the body. Sleep never refers to the soul or spirit of man, as some Seventh-day Adventists teach, but is referring to the body, the material part. Only waiting for union back with the soul and spirit, the immaterial part. Another writer, I like what this writer says. Listen to this. Paul is using this phrase, Because there is a similarity between sleep and death. There's a similarity. A dead body and a sleeping body are actually very much the same. A sleeper does not cease to exist. And the inference is that the dead do not cease to exist just because the body's asleep. Sleep is temporary. Death is also temporary. Sleep has its waking. Death has its resurrection. What's uh, very interesting, the Greek word for being asleep is kemai, which means to lie down. And then the word for resurrection has two Greek words, anastasis, thasis, and histemi. I'm not the best Greek reader, but they mean to stand up. It is only the body that can lie down at death and can stand up at the resurrection. So for the Greek listener, the concept of sleep Paul uses is to communicate they are not abandoned. They are not abandoned. As the average person at time believed, they are not forgotten. They will not be left behind to rot. So that means my dad isn't destined for the red clay of a cemetery in Ohio. In fact, did you know the word cemetery means a rest house or a sleeping place? So because of this truth, we do not grieve as most people do when we have lost someone we love. We may, I think we should mourn. We should mourn. It's not as God intended. But we don't mourn or we don't grieve as the non-believer who has no hope. They have no hope. A famous Greek poet once wrote, hopes are among the living only. The dead, they have no hope. And there was a grave uh, tomb at the time of the Thessalonian church that said, after death, no reviving. After grave, no meeting again. But not so, but not so for those who believe. They're only sleeping. They're only sleeping. I'll tell you what, when you conduct funerals for families, there's a vast difference between people who know their loved ones are Christians And those who have loved ones that they're not sure about. I tell you, I remember performing a funeral where a man who knew his son, he knew his son was eternally lost, and he was screaming and moaning at the coffin. It was heart-wrenching. Sometimes, I got to tell you, I hate doing funerals. But not for the Christians. My dad just simply sleeps. Sometimes um, we get lost. This is really important for people to know. The second reason we have hope that he's going to say is verse 14. Verse 14, Jared talked all about this, and he's dead on. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the idea is that those who have fallen asleep are united with Christ. And since Jesus is going to come back, they're going to come back too. They have, there's union with Christ. So here's Paul's point. Those who are in Christ are forever united to Christ. So once you are his, you're his forever. Go to Ephesians 1. If you ever want to, like you want to know about a passage that's a really good passage to walk somebody through about what does it mean to be saved? What is salvation? Look at Ephesians chapter 1. This is really important. I want you to look at verses uh, 11 through 14. Paul is very specific. So he writes, in him, it's a prepositional phrase, in, in him, so my life is in Christ, so if I'm in him, we have obtained an inheritance. That means we have obtained what I would say riches that are waiting for us from the Father. They're his that are ours now because we're his children. So if we're in him, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the idea is we were in him the moment we heard the word of truth. Well, what is the word of truth? Well, it's the gospel. It's that Jesus died for you on a cross. And if you believe that, he not only was buried, but he rose again from the grave. Okay, so, you're then sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. You're sealed. That means you are, God stamps his ownership on you by giving you the Holy Spirit, which means you're his. You're sealed. And who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? It's a guarantee that we're going to have that inheritance, that heavenly, that heavenly uh, future, if you want to put it like that. That's called union. So to sum up, we've obtained an inheritance. If we are in, in him, we are considered in him when we hear the gospel and believe. And once we believe, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, who's our guarantee so we are in him when we believe, and he is in us through the Holy Spirit. That's real union. And so with that, here's some two, two truths that we can extrapolate from that. Number one is a promise. First is a promise. We just read that with Jared, Romans 6, 5. If we've been united with him, like this in his death, we will certainly, without a doubt, also be united with him in his resurrection. So the moment I believe the gospel, I mean, this needs to be as simple as possible. So the moment I believe the gospel, I vicariously joined Jesus. Vicariously means I'm actually with him by faith. So Jesus is in his death on the cross, died a real death, so did I. Those thorns, the nails, the spear in his side, the drinking from the sponge, so did I. When he died, God also recognized me as dead. I died when he died. 
So because he resurrected from the dead three days later, I too will rise someday. My body is a guaranteed being risen. Jared used the word first fruits. In the Old Testament, they would have grain, and they'd take the first portion, and they'd wave it, called the first fruit offering. And this waving means it's the, the, the harvest is here, it's guaranteed, that means the rest of it's coming. So Jesus was being the wave offering, his body's waving, and so Corinthians says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. So if he rose from the dead, those who are sleeping will too. This is a promise, and God never lies. That's why we have hope. So uh, what is the second truth is the practical reality then. The question is, how exactly does this work? If a person's body is sleeping in the ground, where then is their soul and spirit? If my dad's body is buried in clay right now in Ohio, where's the rest of him? Is it a mystery, or does the Bible give us some answers? Because I wonder, I'm worried about my dad. I love him. Where is he? Paul gives us, I think, one of the most fascinating discourses on the practical implications of union with Christ. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9. And I want you to turn there and read it. This is very important. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9. Paul writes, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So verse 1 is fascinating. If we have a tent that's our earthly home, so I'm in a tent. I'm, I'm wearing 1966 canvas right now. And 1966 canvas, it's kind of like if, you had, if you've ever had a tent from 1966, it start, it's been in the sun too long, and the zipper doesn't work as well. And you lose a few tent pegs. That's kind of where I'm at right now. That's what he's saying. <laughs> These are tents. This canvas falls apart. And if you don't believe me, wait till you turn 50. Fantastic. And I know what other people say. Chris, you know nothing. Wait till you turn 55. I know. Look at verse 2. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Meaning, what is our heavenly dwelling? The idea is... This tent is fragile. Our heavenly dwelling is substantial. So you could say it like this. Our heavenly dwelling is going to be like Iron Man's body, but with flesh. Pick that thing up. You know, I don't know. But it's waiting for me. And he's saying, I can't wait to get it. Verse 2, I'm groaning with this old tent. I'm waiting to put on that Iron Man body. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This is mortal. The new body that's waiting for us is real life. Verse 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There it is again. I'm unified with him. So we are of good courage. We know that while we're at home in a body, we are away from the Lord. So while I'm here at home, I'm not really with him the way I want to be with him. For we walk by faith and not by sight. The way I'm with Christ right now is by faith. But then, verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. 
And indeed, we'd rather be away from this body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're home in our tent or away, we make it our aim to please him. So where's my dad? He's, a, he's with the Lord. He's got some kind of spiritual body. I don't know what it's like. But he's at home with the Lord, waiting for his perfect body. Either way, here in this 1960s pup tent, or an Iron Man shell, I'll always be with Jesus. So then the second question, let's go back to Thessalonians, is going to be concerning, and this is probably what you're waiting for, the coming of the Lord. When's he coming? Give me the date, the timeline. I will next week. I got it exactly. <laughs> Some of you are going to leave from that because you know. So the second thing I believe Paul is addressing in this passage is about the coming, and if I missed him or not. So remember, they had anxiety. Did I miss him? That's the question. Did I miss him? In a way, as a Thessalonian, you could say, I, you know what, right now I don't care about the dead, but I, what about me? I want to be with him. Did I miss him? Is it even possible to miss it? Like the movie, Thief in the Night, is Jesus going to sneak? Is he going to sneak in, quickly take his own, and then sneak away in a whisper with only the buzzing of a razor? Is that it? And then those who are left, are they going to be worried that they were left out as if a person who never wanted to be with Jesus would all of a sudden want to be with Jesus? <laughs> kind of a weird scenario. So Paul is going to address this concern. And to do this, he does what every good rabbi does. He references Old Testament typology to try to project what it's going to be like. I also think Jesus talked to him and gave him information what it's going to be like. And so we can find Old Testament clues that he's going to reference. The first one, like I would say we could find, is Exodus 19.16, Mount Sinai, when Moses was going to bring the law down. It says Mount Sinai, when Moses came down, it had thunder, flashes of lightning, thick clouds, and trumpets. Psalm 47.5 said God is going to come with shouting and trumpets. Daniel 12.1 and 2 says Michael the archangel will precede the waking of the dead. And Jesus himself in Matthew 26, 64, before the Sanhedrin said, I'm coming in the clouds. So you could say three things that Paul is going to say are consistent about Old Testament references. Look at what he says. Verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven, so he's going to come down, with a cry, a loud shout. So the first thing is a shout, a cry, like a cry isn't like, a cry is like, God, I louder than that. Okay, so a cry. Second thing is the voice of an archangel. I wonder what a voice of an archangel sounds like. Some people, like in Revelation, it's Jesus, but there was some hint that the voice was the sound of many rushing waters. And then it, so the second thing will be archangels, and who, what are archangels? Archangels are military creatures sent to accompany the commander. And then the third thing says trumpets will sound. That's what it says right there in the trumpet of God. 
louder than that, louder than this. Louder than that. So, tell me something. If all three of these elements are part of this, is it going to be secret and sneaky or loud and earth shaking? I think so. I think so. Or let me ask it this way. When it happens, do you think anyone is going to miss it? One writer says, what you have here is a heavenly summons that is intended to wake the dead out of their slumber. John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus himself says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I think Paul is saying, if you missed it, you'll know it. <laughs> you'll know it. You'll know it. God will make it very obvious. It'll be a lot more obvious than a lawnmower or electric shaver. So how will this happen? So let's just kind of look at how Paul describes generally how this will happen. So you have a dead man under the ground and a guy walking. So let's read verse 15. Verse 15 says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, the guy walking, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. So it begins by saying, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So the first thing that's going to happen is the Lord's going to descend. He's going to descend. I believe the Lord will come with clouds, ominous, dangerous clouds. I believe his appearance will be intended for everyone to see him. Then it says, you know, when he comes, there's going to be a cry of command, voice of an archangel. And then it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the first people he addresses is the dead. It says the dead will rise. Those who are the Christian dead will be raised to join the living at Christ's return. And he uses the word of first or by first in the NIV. One writer said that Paul wants the reader to know the dead are not disadvantaged. So using the phrase to so the first thing. So the dead aren't at a disadvantage. They are not abandoned and forgotten. Not only that, but they are just as precious to the Lord as the living are. That's the idea. So, what's happening at this moment, this is when the soul and spirit, the immaterial, join with the new heavenly dwelling. 1 Corinthians says, for the body, this transformation will happen in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. It's talking about the union of the body, not necessarily the appearance of Christ. And then thirdly, verse 17, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So he's addressing the transformation of the living. And the transformation of the living will join the dead who just woke up, because the dead aren't dead, they're sleeping, they woke up, they join the living, and then together, and that's the point, together, we will meet the Lord in the air. This is where the word rapture comes from. It's a Latin word, snatched up, taken out. It is a Latin phrase that is describing the ascent of the whole church, both living and the dead, to go to their final destination to be with Christ. There's some question, what does it mean to be in the air? To meet him in the air. Where is the air? What, what does that mean? Is that heaven? What, what's going on there? Paul's not specific, so I don't know in this passage. 
The only concern Paul seems to have is that you'll be with Jesus. Don't worry. In fact, he offers no timeline of events. He doesn't tell us when it happens. What events should we look for? And he doesn't tell if it's soon because they assumed it's soon. He doesn't answer these questions. And the book of Revelation wasn't even written yet. So he can't have his graph figured out yet. Can't fill in the questions. And Left Behind series wasn't written yet, so he didn't know. <laughs> so, so what was Paul's intention? What was Paul's intention? To inform and encourage those who are worried that they wouldn't see the dead, their dead loved ones again, and they might be left behind. Gordon Fee writes this. I like this. Whatever else may be true of Paul's words in this passage, their reason for being is not to satisfy their nor our eschatological, that means our end times, curiosity. Rather, the aim of everything is encouragement for people who've been recently bereft of those they love and whose understanding of certain aspects of Christian eschatology was deficient, thus leading them to sorrow of others who have no hope. So this is about hope not threat, and should continue to be treated as such in the church. So then you're asking, so Chris, what think ye of the rapture? I absolutely and wholeheartedly believe in it. I do. I believe, Paul to me makes it plain that the church, his assembled body, will be snatched up by Christ and be with them forever. That's unbelievable, really. That's incredible. Next week, I will give you my short timeline and when I think that might possibly occur. Possibly, though. By no means, definitely. I had one person was arguing in times and they said, you know, Pastor Chris doesn't agree with you on that. Like as if, oh boy. <laughs> Do you remember that book, Harbinger? Came out about 10 years ago. Whatever happened to that book, by the way? Anybody know? I know it was $29.95. So, um, strictly concerning this passage, Paul's intention is for our hope. If you are knighted with Christ, you will always be with the Lord. And instead of trying to scare people in the church by saying, you don't want to miss the rapture, wish you'd have been ready, I don't think this is necessarily about being snatched up as much it's about being brought to someone. Christianity is about Christ, knowing him now and enjoying him forever. And if you don't enjoy him now, there's no reason you will want him later. So you could say it like this, so instead of saying, I wish we'd all been ready, the real emphasis of this book is, I wish you could know him now. I wish you could be identified with him today by believing the gospel, the truth, hearing it, believing it, and being sealed with the Holy Spirit today. Because I'd put it like this. Jesus is coming back. Yes. Absolutely. When? Anytime. Anytime. He could come to your hospital bed in a month. He could catch you up in the clouds. That isn't the question. It is, do you know him right now? And think hard on that, because in a way, it's not that this is intended to scare you, and I don't want to scare you with it. The, this is, this is going to happen.
And um, it's only going to happen to those who are, who are in him and united to him.